Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to read briefly from Zechariah chapter 9. Just verses 9 through 17. This will provide a little bit of context for us. When we turn to our sermon passage, which is in Hebrews 9. So the sermon this morning comes from Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28. But first, let's look at Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold! Your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, made you like a Sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet. And go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins. Like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its beauty, its goodness, and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young man thrive, and new wine the young women. Amen. Zechariah looks and prophesies. He calls to us and says, Behold, look with me. Do you see what is coming? He is a king. There is a king who is coming. And he is coming in peace. He's not mounted on his great stallion of war. He's on his donkey. He is coming in peace. In fact, in verse 10, we're told specifically, He will put an end to war. He will break the weapons of war. He will establish peace. How will he do this? Verse 11, through the blood of the covenant, he will deliver us from the waterless pit. That is the grave. Through the death of Jesus Christ, he will establish resurrection for those of us who are condemned to death due to sin. In verse 12, he urges us, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. I love that line. You who wear shackles and chains. The shackles and chains of the gospel. 
who are enslaved to hope in the death of Christ. And I will restore to you double. I will raise you up as weapons of war. Judah the bow, Ephraim the arrow. Verse 14, I will send you forth like lightning. I will shoot the church into the world like an arrow. And coming up out of the south with a trumpet call, the gospel will advance through the ministry of the church. Till at last he has set his crown of jewels on all the nations of the earth. His Christ rules and reigns. With this beautiful image, this prophetic foresight of Zechariah in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, or at least I have, you've been listening. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we've come now to the middle of chapter 9, beginning with verse 15. And we'll go down to the end of the chapter, that is verse 28. Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Here again, the word of the Lord. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore... It was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often, since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for 
salvation. Amen and amen. Well, some economists have begun to talk about the great wealth transfer that supposedly will happen over the next decade. Estimates, estimates very widely. Some say $70 trillion. Some say $140 trillion. Those are really big numbers and they're really far apart. But supposedly baby boomers over the next decade are going to leave to Gen Xers and millennials this vast storehouse of wealth. I read a fantastic article a couple of weeks ago in which the author said, not going to happen for two reasons. One is it's going to leak away into medical care, health care at the end of life and aging. You can add in there, you know, estate taxes and all those other little things. But those are little things. The big thing is that most baby boomers are actually going to spend their wealth before they leave it. The second thing she observed is, the reality is, is as soon as Gen Xers and Millennials get it, they're just going to light it on fire because they don't save money. She got to the end of her article and she said, so the reality is, is we're all going to die and it's not going to make much difference to those who come after us. And I went, we've come a long way from John Donne. Do not ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We've come a long way from understanding death as a significant companion to the human experience. The economist glibly throws out, we're all going to die. And it's not going to matter to those who come after us. But it was not so for Jesus. And it is not so for all of us who are in Jesus. You see, in his death, our sin died. The good news for us this morning, the gospel truth for us this morning, is that there is an inheritance, a legacy, and an estate that has passed to us because of the death of Jesus Christ. And it's worth a lot more than $140 trillion. Jesus died for you. Live. Live sin free. This is the good news in our passage this morning. Jesus died for you. Live. Live sin free. With this in mind, notice verse 15. Look with me at it. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus has a role and a responsibility. He is to administrate a covenant. He is the mediator who brings two parties together into a covenant relationship. Those two parties are God and humanity. He is the go-between the administrator of the instruments that establishes this partnership. He creates a relationship between you and God, a relationship of love and of family and of affection. The reason Jesus is qualified for that unique office, to be between you and your maker, and to reconcile you into a loving and healthy relationship, a covenant between the two of you, 
is because by means of his death, he has redeemed you from transgression. That you might be called to receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What the Holy Spirit is here saying is that Jesus has a right to stand between you and God. Because it's his death that buys you back from the curse of your sin. But what is more, it is his death that establishes in you a new life. By which you have an eternal inheritance. An eternal life. A righteousness that cannot be lost. A truthfulness that cannot be broken. In his death, he has established what the hymn writer called the double cure. In which he has provided for both the curse of your sin and the gift of eternal life. He's not only redeemed you from death, he's brought you into eternal life. And with these two mighty arms of salvation, Christ has embraced you and pulled you into a loving relationship with God we call a covenant. That's what this verse is teaching us. Now, if we were to imagine this as something like two businesses coming together in a merger, we might call Jesus the negotiator, who works out the various stipulations and compromises that produce two signatures on the respective dotted lines. Or if we imagine this as two nations forming a treaty, we might call Jesus the diplomat who gets the leaders to shake hands and smile for the camera. If we imagine this as a marriage, we don't do it this way anymore, but use your historical imagination. We would call Jesus the matchmaker who gets a man and a woman to agree to be husband and wife. But these are not the illustrations that the Holy Spirit chooses. They help us imagine the role that Jesus is playing. He's getting God, and He's getting humanity, and He's bringing them together into a covenant relationship, into a bond of love, where God loves the humans and the humans love God. And they live together in peace and joy. They live together forever happily. And he does it by means of his death. And for that reason, the Holy Spirit chooses this metaphor. This covenant is like a last will and testament. In verses 16 and 17, we are told that where there is a testament, there is of necessity the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. This is an image we can grasp. It's as familiar as the other three I invented. There is a piece of paper. It sits in a filing cabinet or in a safe. And it has words on it that describe all the benefits and assets and blessings and liabilities and debts that this individual or that this married couple have. And then it stipulates who gets what. So long as that individual or that couple lives, it's just a piece of paper in a filing cabinet. 
But as soon as the death occurs, it is reality. Do you see what the Holy Spirit is telling us? That for all those years, from Abel to Zechariah, from Adam to Malachi, the relationship with God was written out on a piece of paper, promised and anticipated, like the will and testament kept in your safe. It is the future reality, it is binding. And if you believe in it, you are saved. But it is not yet affected. But Christ came into the world. And he was crucified on a cross. And once that death occurred, and once that death was established, not by a certificate from the state of Massachusetts, but by three indisputable days in the grave, we now know His last will and testament is in force. It is the reality. What Christ in his legacy left for us. We are no longer heirs. Of an estate of sin and misery. We are heirs of a heavenly kingdom. Co-heirs with Christ. For when he died. What he left written in his vault. Is I want all my sinless. Righteous perfect, spotless, blameless obedience to be transferred to their account. I want the atonement, the sacrifice, the blood, the appeasement, the propitiation of my death transferred to their account. That was his last will and testament. I want what is mine by nature Sonship of God, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I want it to be theirs by grace. And once he breathed his last and said, it is finished, it was reality. It was true. You now live in that world where that is your eternal inheritance, you are justified, sanctified, glorified, if you have been, as it says in the verse, called. Called. Verse 15, those who are called receive it. That the Father has spoken to you from the heavens and said, come, in Christ be my children. That the Son has spoken here on earth and said, come, follow me. I will lead you into the eternal inheritance. The Spirit, through the means of the Word and the sacraments, has whispered to you. The Spirit, through family and friends and fellowship, has whispered to you and said, come. Come. And the triune God calls to us in the Scriptures. He calls to us in the conversations. And he says, come. Receive the death of Christ and be free of your sin. Be free of your sin. How is this so? Let the Holy Spirit teach us. It says, beginning in verse 19, for Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. 
He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book, that is of the law, itself, and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Notice that when Moses establishes a relationship between God and Israel, as a type and shadow of the coming Christ who would establish a new covenant, Moses had two parts to that covenant, book and blood. The book had the law of God. It had the commands. If you're going to live with God, this is what you're going to look like. If you're going to live with God, this is what life will look like. Because he is a holy God. And you have to live with him on his terms. It's his world. It's his covenant. You got to do it his way. But then there's blood. Because you can't. Because you can't. There is blood to atone for the book. We have to sprinkle blood on the book. Because we can't get to God through the law. In this way, the Holy Spirit offers us an illustration of our relationship to the Scriptures. That whenever we pick up our Bibles, we should flip open the pages and we should see the law of God as a mirror reflecting our sin and showing us our depravity and our neediness, leading us to confess our guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God. But then we should sprinkle the book with the blood of the, of the sacrifice. And we should see in the same page, in the same law, not only our curse and condemnation, but Christ's crucifixion and resurrected righteousness. That the mirror that had just shown us our condemnation under the law should then become a vast and glorious portrait. Better than Rembrandt. That shows us the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. And on the basis of this view, the Bible brings forth repentance and obedience. When we go to the Bible and read it with humble hearts, so that it cuts us down and cuts us apart. Like a two-edged sword, it separates our hearts from the sins that live in it. And we are undone. And we say to a holy God, I am undone. That's step one. Don't skip that step. But step two is to then see not a mirror, but a portrait. To see not myself cursed and condemned, but Christ crucified for me, so that I am free from the sins I have committed. So that I am free to embrace that law with love and with joyful obedience. This, by the way, is the three uses of the law. I'm trying to do it in a pastoral and poetic way so that it grips your hearts and you want to obey me. But if we want to do the little teaching thing, these are the three uses of the law. It brings us under condemnation, it shows us our Christ, and it teaches us the way to live in Christ. Yes? Is that helpful too? This is what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. That we are to read our Bibles and feel the curse and condemnation 
our sin deserves. But in the same reading, we are to then proceed to the second use of the law and to see in our Bibles the free offer of a crucified Christ for that curse and condemnation that we might know and feel forgiveness. And then we are to proceed finally to the third use of the law to order aright our thinking and our feeling and our speaking and our acting in accord with the gospel we have just heard. Ah, this is what Jesus looks like and I want to look like him. Ah, this is what Jesus is working for in this world and I want to work with him. But the Holy Spirit not only gives us the law, the word of God to to work this out in our lives, the Holy Spirit then gives us worship. In verse 21 and 22, we are told, Moses sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry. For For according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Even as the book of the law, which could only condemn the people of God, had to be sprinkled with blood in order to produce obedience in the people, so too that tabernacle... And those vessels of ministry that were meant to bring the worshiper into the very presence of God. Were meant to unite them with God in a friendship and in a fellowship. That they might eat that feast of peace together in the holy place. Couldn't do it. The vessels had to be sprinkled with blood. And so too the tabernacle itself had to be sprinkled with blood. In the same way my friends. Do not mistake listening to preaching and believing the preaching. Just because I fill your ears for 30 or 40 minutes on a Sunday doesn't mean you get a pass into glory. It's got to go from ear to head to heart. You must receive in faith what is said. In the same way, do not assume that the waters of baptism which wet your skin for a few minutes and then was gone, is the same as receiving the grace that was sealed and signified therein. In the same way, don't assume that because you can fool your elders and be welcome to the Lord's table, that you can fool the God of heaven. And he doesn't know you're eating and drinking without Christ. My friends, recognize that this worship service like the law itself, is not given to you as a salvation. That's Christ. It's given to you as a means of salvation to connect you to Christ. Warming a pew won't get you into glory. The tabernacle must be sprinkled with blood. The vessels of ministry must be sprinkled with blood. This sermon is of no account if it is not preaching Christ. And if you're not receiving it in faith, so too all our ministry and our vessels of ministry. Friends, when you have conversation with neighbors, when you have conversation with lost but beloved unbelieving friends and family, it is blood that they need. But so it is that when blood is put upon it, when that conversation is sprinkled with the death of Jesus Christ, when that conversation is enriched, By the life of Christ as given in the gospel. So there is actual remission of sin. The sin through the shedding of blood is shed from the worshiper. 
And we actually get to worship face to face with the living God in glory. I know every time you come here, you think it's Antrim Street. And I know it looks a lot like Antrim Street. But John Calvin rejected the view of the sacrament that said Jesus comes down and inhabits the table. He said it was backwards. He doesn't come down and sit on my table. I and the Spirit go up and we feast with Him in glory. That's why I use that phrase when I serve the supper. Friends, Jesus has actually shed His blood to actually forgive sin. And so worship is here to communicate that to us. That we might live sin free. This is how He does it. God has brought us through Christ into a loving covenant relationship with Him. That by His death, He might actually pardon our sin. And I can preach and declare to you good news. That sin that you just committed five minutes ago, five hours ago, five days ago, it's gone. Peace and pardon is yours. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. No curse of the law. You may worship with a cleansed conscience. Verse 14. But so too the Holy Spirit is not merely pointing us to this glorious truth. The removal of the curse and condemnation of our sin. But also its corruption. Because we are not only cleansed in our conscience according to verse 14. We are cleansed in order to serve the living God. In verse 14. This is what he makes plain in the following verses. 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices for these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, when the Holy Spirit looks back on Moses' tabernacle sprinkled with blood, with Moses' vessels sprinkled with blood, with Moses' book sprinkled with blood, he says it was fitting, it was right, it was appropriate that the blood of animals should be on that earthly anticipation, that transitory type and shadow of the coming reality. But it is not so with our Jesus. Those copies represented the reality. The reality is is that Christ has gone into heaven itself where there are, in fact, heavenly things. Abrekel speaks of the church and says, it is a heavenly kingdom with a heavenly king consisting of heavenly stuff. That's a technical theological term in, in the original Dutch. Heavenly stuff. Heavenly things with heavenly people. No longer are we merely wrestling with types and shadows. No longer are we guessing and imagining at what this earthly thing means. We know the meaning of life. We know the meaning of death. We know the answer to life's greatest questions. It's Jesus. We have the answer in His death and in His resurrection. That He, through His blood, has purified this earth and us That he has entered into the heavens itself. But the phrase I want us to focus on this morning in this verse 
is the final two words. Not only has Jesus ushered in this new reality where types and shadows are done away with, where figures and images and illustrations come to their fruition and their reality, he says, Christ is there in the heavens before the face of God for us. What do you imagine Jesus is doing in heaven? I mean, did did you imagine that when he rose from the dead, conquering the curse of death, when he rose from the grave and up into the heavens and ascended on high and was seated at the right hand of God in power, that he sat back, put his foot up on on the ottoman and said, that was a good day's work. Do you imagine that he rested? Do you imagine that he checked out? That he said, I've done my job? Tag, you're it. By no means. The Holy Spirit would have us imagine a resurrected and reigning Christ who is bending his every thought, his every will, his every ounce of power to save his people from their sin. He is relentless. He is ruthless. He will not leave you in the grip of your sin. He will not leave you under the power of your corruption. Not only did he die that you should not be condemned for your sin. Not only did he die that you should not be cursed for your sin. He died that you should no longer sin. That through the power of his intercession... Through the power of His presence and glory, He should give to you the strength to say that sacred word, no, whenever you are tempted. Why do we succumb to temptation? There are two reasons. One is we're still on earth, and we will most certainly in our frailty and in our flesh succumb to temptation. The other, my friends, It's because we spend so little time in heaven. Should we fix our minds, according to the Apostle Paul's command in Colossians 3, on the things that are above where Christ is, seated in the heavens, we should have heavenly power to do what Paul commands us to do, put to death what is earthly in you. How do we crucify the sins we love so much? We look to Jesus. And we see that He is for us. And so no sin can be against us. We see that he prays for us. That he applies his blood and his death to us. We look to heaven and we see Jesus. And we understand I'm not only free from its curse and its condemnation. I'm free from its power and its corruption. He's praying for me. I don't need to do this sin. I don't need to succumb to this temptation. The second tool that he hands you then... Verse 26, that he would then have had, in verse 25, sorry, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. That is to say that in the old administration under Moses, the high priest had to keep going into the tabernacle and sprinkle new blood every year because the old blood dried up and faded away. Had to be repeated often every year. And it had to be the blood of another, the blood of an animal. 
that was fitting for that earthly administration of that covenant relationship. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world for Jesus to keep pace with all the elect sin. If that were the principle, he would have had to die at least annually, if not daily, for all the lives of humanity, for all the history of the world. That can't be the principle. His death can't be like the death of an animal. Or he would be dying constantly and perpetually because that's how often we're sinning. No, instead, Jesus appeared once at the end of the ages. And he offered himself a sacrifice. And what does the Holy Spirit here say? To put away sin. What will put away your sin? It fits the meter, doesn't it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit would have us believe. That Jesus died, that there would be no condemnation for you who are in him. But so too, Jesus died that you should sin no longer. That through his death, there might be a heavenly intercession, a heavenly power to sustain you in the hour of temptation. But so too, that there should be one death once for all at the end of the ages. Through his sacrifice, you should have inspiration, cause and power and purpose Which would cause you to say no when sin comes rearing its ugly head at your door. That he has put away my sin. That when you hold temptation in your hand, when you hold temptation in your eyes, when you hold temptation in your heart, you stop and you actively think through the Spirit's power. Jesus has to die for this. Do I really want that? Do I really want to coddle and grip the nails that pierced him, hand and feet? Do I really want to cherish and to treasure the thorns that pierced his brow? Do I really want that splintery wood that dug into his back, the whips that lashed his muscle? Is that what I love? The thing that crucified my Christ? No, indeed. Be gone, sin. Be gone, Satan. Be gone, temptation. I don't want you in my life anymore. You killed my Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit teaches us. Is a gospel, good news, of sin-free living. I don't mean sinless. That won't happen in this life. That comes in the resurrection. But I do mean a genuine freedom, a true liberty, where you do not need to carry the guilt and the shame anymore. And I beg you as your preacher, put it down today. Take the guilt and the shame and cast it on Christ and leave those doors guilt-free, shame-free. He died for you. In the same way, this week, 
When you face sin and temptation in your life, put it down. Cast it on Christ and say, He died for this. I don't have to do it. I'm free. Use the law, the word of God. Use the fellowship of the saints, the accountability of brothers and sisters. And awaken in your life this faith that puts to death sin and what is earthly in you. For we are given one last concept in which to seal up these truths in our hearts in verses 27 and 28. For as it is appointed for men to die once. You've heard me say this many, many times. It is worth saying many, many, many more times. You will die. Every last one of you. You will die. It is appointed. And then comes the judgment. That is our future. That is the fact. That is the reality that is penetrating this world. You die and you face judgment. So also Christ was offered once to bear sins of many. Do you perceive the logic here? So also Christ died once as you die once. And offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. I know the judgment. Do you? I know the heavenly verdict. I can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 17. Judge me according to my righteousness. Because my righteousness has been imputed to me by Christ through faith. It's not my own. It was a gift of God. Can you say that? Is this your gospel? The good news in your heart that that through faith you say, yes, I will die. But in dying, I will be judged. And in being judged, I will be sin free. At long last. And all my heart's desire. A lifetime of longing for sin free living. I at last possess it. And oh sweet grave, you have brought me into eternal glory. This is what we are offered this morning. Will you receive it? Will you live a sin-free life? The life that is offered to you in the death of Christ. Because the last line says, those who eagerly wait for Him, will appear, as He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Are you waiting for Jesus? Are you looking for Jesus? In every day and around every corner. For in Him is your justification. For in Him is your sanctification. And as has been so beautifully presented to us this morning, in Him is your glorification. Beloved, Jesus died for you. Live a sin-free life. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for the grace and glory that is evident here in these scriptures. We give you thanks for the stern warning to not persist in sin. 
but to be free. To be free of its guilt and its shame. To be free of its curse and its condemnation. To be free of its corruption and its power. To be free of its temptation. Oh, Father, hide us in Christ. Cover us with His righteousness and His holiness. Bind us up in His life and in His death. That we should be free from our sin. And that we should more and more day to day advance from that which you have said is true of us, from that which will one day be truly and entirely true of us. Father, have mercy. That these truths which we have heard, we will this day believe and practice to the praise of your precious name. In that name we pray. Amen.